Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week. And it is a pretty special week at Lost in Sciences Week. It is our International Women's Day special edition of Lost in Science. My name is Claire and today I am joined in the studio with someone very special, a very special friend of mine, Dr. Lyndon Ashcroft. Hello. Hello, Claire. How are you? It's wonderful to be here. International Women's Day. How exciting it to is share so ex- with you. It is so exciting. It is so exciting. And I'm very glad we've kicked the men out of the studio and we are taking over. Feels good. Feels it feels good in here. It feels very, very mm. good. We're going to be your guides in science for the next half hour. Yeah, so I think we've got a few things going on. We're going to interview a couple of excellent guests, a couple of stars in the... Superstars. Superstars. Of STEM. In the Australian STEM community. We're going to have a bit of a chat about our favourite female scientists. It is all science, all women today. So stay with us. You are listening to Lost in Science, International Women's Day special with Claire and Lyndon. And with us in the studio are two superstars of STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths, obviously. We have Dr. Linda McIver and Dr. Karen Lamb. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having us. Thanks. It's awesome to be here. Now, I did mention in the intro that you are superstars. Um, This is not just uh, hyperbole on my behalf. Um, You are actually part of a program called the Superstars of STEM. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Science and Technology Australia started a program called the Superstars of STEM with the intention of raising the profile of women in those fields um, and in particular giving school students and, and younger people an idea of what it means to be a professional in STEM and that there's just this incredible range of ways to engage with STEM professionally. Uh, we all have PhDs. Uh, but we're not all working in academia. We have engineers, biostatisticians and computer scientists, obviously, but we've also got cancer researchers. We've got an archaeologist. We've got people who work in reproductive health and ecology. It's just this huge range of different applications and different ways of spending your day that all come under the STEM heading. Karen, what is the best part about being a superstar of STEM? Also a superstar in general. <laughs> So I think um, for me, but I think for a lot of the superstars, it's the connection we've made with each other. And we're all working in quite competitive environments. Um, You know, research can be quite hard going at times. Um, So we've been connected to another 29 women who are here to support one another and help each other engage and deal with challenges that they've faced. So we've got people ranging from, you know, chief science of Bureau of Meteorology to people just out of their PhD. So it's been a really broad spectrum of people to learn from and get to know. And that's been really exciting. 
So what does the program entail? I mean, do you guys just sort of you get to make some awesome capes and walk around saying how great you are? Or <laughs> I'm still you... waiting for my cape. <laughs> oh, you've got <laughs> no cape? cape. All right. So what, what else do you get to do as a part of this? Yeah, yeah. So basically for a 12-month period, we're advocating for women in STEM. Um, so last July, they recruited 30 of us into this program and they embarked on a bunch of training. So first and foremost was social media training, which I have to say I was pretty useless at before I joined this program so we're trying to be a bit more active on platforms like Twitter where I think a lot of male scientists are really profiling themselves um, so we've been trying to show what we do and um, what it's like to be in STEM um, and the, the kind of work that we've been involved in but they've also been allowing us to engage with people from different sectors so going to science meets policymakers, science meets parliament, science meets business and really trying to learn how to communicate to lots of different audiences. Speaking about communicating to lots of different audiences, obviously you would um, a big part of communicating is telling people what your field of expertise is and what you're researching. Do you want to give us a bit of a taster of what it is you actually do? So for me, I actually left research a few years ago to become a high school teacher. And it's such a problem in schools that we are losing students out of the tech field, um, partly because tech subjects at school tend to be his six months of learning how to format word documents um, at which point kids would rather poke themselves in the eye with a sharp stick than ever touch <laughs> tech again which you know I can completely understand so for me the the focus is that if we're going to teach tech in schools we need to teach it in the context of something real and there's a fabulous opportunity for students to do something that is real, authentic and actually makes a difference. Uh, my students have presented at academic conferences. I had year 11s from last year presenting at Lawn Genome uh, just a few weeks ago. What an um, amazing opportunity. Yeah, well, they've, they've worked with scientists and they've made software that's, you know, achieved real results. And for me, all students should have that opportunity, not just the ones in my classes. And with data science, it's actually really easy to do. So that's why I've um, actually left the classroom and I'm focusing now on teaching teachers to teach data science and to put data science into the way they teach science and maths and geography and everything. And Karen, so sorry, tell us a, a bit more about what you do when you're not being a superstar. Um, so my skill set is quite complementary to Linda's, which I guess is why we kind of formed a close bond when we started this program. Um, I'm a biostatistician, and usually when I tell people that, they run away or they go, <laughs> what the hell is that? Um, which uh, that's what I've been learning through this program is how to communicate actually what a biostatistician is. Um, you must be really good at explaining what it is then. Well, I, I, I'll try. See how we go. So I like to think of it as the science of answering questions about health using data. Um, so it's kind of a broad brush thing where I can go and help anyone that's collecting data on health or behavior. And I help them to not only use the data to answer the questions, but I help them design their studies. I help them to frame their question in a way that can be answered. And then I help them to use statistics to actually answer it and present their findings in a meaningful way. You both work in areas of science where women are probably underrepresented uh, for, straight off the bat, for, even from an undergraduate uh, area. What do you think needs to happen for this to kind of change for gender equality in science? I think, well, from my perspective, actually, statistics, when I was studying, there were more women than men. Um, but one of the challenges we really faced was that um, we didn't have any women teaching us, though. Um, so it was really hard to see yourself in these more senior roles um, without having someone to obviously role model um but you know I, I still find that here where there's a lot I've got a lot of female friends that are biostatisticians but we're 
kind of get stuck at that mid-career stage. So trying to ensure that we can move forward and um, and grow and actually develop our own teams and, and leads in the profession is actually one of the challenges that, that seems to be facing women in biostatistics. That's an extent to which I think that problem is a matter of the people who are making the hiring decisions and, and appointing people to senior roles, understanding that so many studies that show that people tend to hire people just like them, which means when you have white older males selecting for the positions, then you get white older males in the positions, and that's just sort of self-perpetuating. So there needs to be, I think, some really proactive policies and things to actually try to change that. You can't just sort of hope that it will change. 20 years ago, they were saying, we'll just get more women in, and then we'll have more women in the top roles in a few years' time, and it hasn't worked at all. Do you think that means including career breaks when considering applications or looking at more flexible working hours or I know I remember somebody I think it was Jenny Graves who won the uh, Prime Minister's Prize for Science was saying a lot of you know women go and leave if they have children but their experiments keep running or their Mm. projects keep running and having someone or their PhD candidates keep keep doing doing things exactly so having someone who can come in during that time to kind of hand over? Is that something that you think could work? There are some really significant issues there, I think, and and it's just so many ways you could support it. But there's also a lot of outright discrimination and and the idea that women should be in the home, and we're still hearing that. In the tech sector, we're still hearing people saying, well, girls just aren't into tech, so there's no point in tackling diversity because girls just aren't interested. They're far more interested in life sciences and it's biological rather than any kind of sociological or systemic issue and that makes me it makes steam come out my ears (laughs) and I think this is another reason why if we put data science in schools then we're actually giving girls an idea of a what it is to do real tech not just formatting word documents um, and b how that can make a difference and there is some evidence that you get greater diversity by showing people the real impact of the work and a lot of our programming courses just you know here draw a pretty picture or here you know do something for the sake of doing it and who finds that interesting really very few people so and it's exactly the same from the maths education perspective I mean I wasn't really engaged in mathematics when I was at school because I was like why am I learning this this doesn't seem appropriate to to know like why why do I need this in everyday life and it was only when I sort of I suggested to go and do maths because I could do it that going into a department and learning what you could do with mathematics what you could do with statistics what kind of practical problems you could solve made me realize that it was so valuable to to learn that skill and I had the same issue in my school learning computing I wish I'd done computing at school and so it's really exciting hearing Linda chatting about this because I need to code in my job I need to to analyze data and that has been one thing that I wish that I'd done more of when I was younger and I'm really keen that that younger generations get to hear about that. You are listening to Lost in Science's International Women's Day special and our guests today are Dr Karen Lamb and Dr Linda McIver, superstars of STEM. Now, Karen, you aren't originally from Australia. You grew up in Scotland, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. How um, did you pick that? <laughs> <laughs> what is the situation for women in STEM in Scotland? Um, is it, have there been any any changes over the last 10 years? I know Australia is moving towards, or currently we're sort of, we've got a program called the Athena Swan Program where yeah. institutions are recognising um, the barriers 
for academics and researchers, female academics and researchers, you know, progressing further in their careers. Has anything like that happened in Scotland? Yeah, absolutely. So the Athena Swan initiative that's been brought over here came over from from the UK um, because they were really concerned about women remaining in institutes and getting the support and getting, you know, maternity leave and flexible working hours. So this was their initiative that they thought would, would improve this. Um, this sort of came, there was a rumbling of it when I left Scotland. So I wasn't still in the system really um, when they were really pushing it. But from what I gather, um, it almost seemed to start with a bit of a sort of tick box exercise where people were going through the motions and trying to improve things. And it was only when it started to get tied into funding and funding opportunities that things started to change because the big funding options were available to those that were actually getting the, the good marks in the Athena Swan. So that's an, an institution applies for recognition from the Athena Swan um, project and yeah. they might get accreditation yeah. and then it's only those institutions that then can then go on to get funding. Yeah so I think the key thing was there was a benchmark of all of them but every every institute was supposed to be seen to improve mm-hmm. in some way so even the ones that were doing quite well had room for improvement um, and so you had to be trying to improve and you know that's the worry with some of these schemes though that it's just like a token gesture but it's important to actually continue to monitor them and see that the the institutes do care. I love that idea that they're actually measuring change um, because a lot of organizations will say they're a family-friendly workplace and they have all these great policies and they can point to the policies they can you know, jump up and down about how wonderful they are, but then you find that your boss says, oh, well, you know, you may be part-time, but I can't really part-time your teaching load, so you just have to part-time your research, which is, you know, pretty much career death. That happened to me. That was an actual conversation, and this was a family-friendly workplace and all that stuff. So it's really so great that they actually have a, a program in place that's actually measuring, you know, the, the outcomes, because unless you do that, then you don't know whether you're actually having an impact. Yeah, so moving forward then, that Athena Swan sounds like it's a great, great initiative. What, what do you guys imagine the perfect world in five, ten years for gender equality in STEM? What do you think? Oh, that's a tough one. It's really hard to envision it. <laughs> I, I think that gender equality has to be in everything. You know, you can't just say we want more women in STEM. You have to therefore have more dads taking paternity leave and being the primary carer or um, even lose the primary care idea entirely and do what my household does which is both of us um we we're both part-time and we both share the drop-offs and pickups and all that stuff from school if you're doing that really treating everybody with equal potential then i think you're getting somewhere and i think if you if if we move more towards a collaborative system rather than competitive you know Karen said at the start we both work in very competitive environments and I wish that wasn't true um, because the the collaborative nature of superstars in STEM has been a revelation just so much support and encouragement imagine if all our workplaces were like that we'd just achieve so much more so superstars in STEM one final question that's it's not just this year right Will it continue? Yeah, we um, just got an announcement this week from the government that they're going to back the program for another four years um, and that they're actually going to double the number of superstars. So um, there's going to be 60 floating about as of every year. So we started with 30. We'll have 60 every for the next four years, 60 new ones each time. That's great. So any uh, superstars out there, future superstars, head onto the Science and Technology Australia website for more information. I'd just encourage people to to 
take on STEM and and in particular, obviously, I'm obsessed with technology. Um, data science for me is massive. So there's a whole lot of teachers out there who I know are really keen on science and really keen on doing science the way we do it now, which is with technology with data science uh, but that's still not the way we teach it so I want to reach out to all of the teachers and say you know get in touch let's do some some data science in your classes let's build it into what you're already doing and really get this off the ground and teachers um, can find more information on, on the on, on the interwebs yeah the yeah. Australian Data Science Education Institute website or just you know google Linda McIver I'm everywhere <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent and I take it you're both on Twitter absolutely they are Well, thank you so much, Linda, Karen, for coming on to Lost in Science today for our International Women's Day special. Um, We wish you all the best for the rest of the year, being the superstars you are. Thank you. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. So there are some pretty exceptional women in science out there and um, I thought I would talk a bit about someone who I find particularly exceptional, the Australian obstetrician and gynaecologist who lives and works in Ethiopia. She's 94 years old. Her name is Dr. Catherine Hamlin. Do you know Dr. Catherine Hamlin? I have heard of Dr. Catherine before, yes. She is a living legend. She co-founded the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital, the world's only medical centre that provides free obstetric fistula repair for women who um, suffer from childbirth injuries. Um, She's changed so many women's lives and um, she's been doing it for 60 years. And she isn't even retired yet. She still lives in a hospital that she created in Ethiopia. She's like a tour de force, so to speak. Now, just to give you a bit of an overview of what um, obstetric fistulas are, because our listeners are excused for not knowing what they are because they're pretty much all but eliminated um, in Australia. So an obstetric fistula, it's an internal injury that can happen to women as a result of a prolonged obstructed labour. So that's where the baby puts pressure on soft tissues um, of a woman's reproductive Um, organs and over a long period of time a fistula develops which is like a hole uh, between the birth canal and the bladder or the rectum Uh, so it leaves survivors constantly leaking either urine or feces sometimes both uncontrollably uh, and can lead to a whole array of different injuries including urethral loss um, incontinence um, renal failure secondary infertility, just to name a few, not to mention sort of the social impacts as well. So um, survivors are often shamed within their communities, isolated and excluded from their families. So it's a pretty debilitating condition for women. So Dr. Catherine Hamlin, her story goes back to actually 1959. So she arrived in Ethiopia in 1959 with her husband. And a week after they started being doctors in Addis Ababa, they encountered their first fistula patient, who was a 17-year-old girl. Um, she'd had a obstructed labour for five days. Eventually, she delivered a stillborn child. So that's the other issue. Most mm. fistula patients and obstructed labours in developing countries result in stillborn children. And the prolonged labour told a hole between her birth canal and her bladder. Fistulas have been eradicated in most developed countries and this is due to increased maternal health care, caesarean sections for, different, uh, for difficult births, 
But Dr. Hamlin came to realise that this was just not the case in Ethiopia. And that's due to a couple of reasons. Um, Girls who have early marriages, malnutrition and heavy manual labour at a young age meant that um, girls with underdeveloped bodies uh, were put at risk and had pregnancies very early on. This is especially true in remote villages where you've got really basic health care and it's very limited by the fact that you've got, you know, 4,000 metre mountains and deep gorges and a lack of infrastructure so you can't get access um, to health care very easily. So seeing this was a problem nationwide, Catherine dedicated her life to eradicating fistula in Ethiopia. So her organisation now operates countrywide. Her and her team have performed fistula surgeries on over 50,000 women and established hospitals in five regional areas in Ethiopia, including um, the flagship fistula hospital in Addis Ababa. They train midwives. They have um, 40 government health centres and she's a recognised expert in fistula surgery and has published countless papers on uh, fistula surgery and, and what needs to be done to support women after they have the surgery as well. She's also one of only two foreigners ever to be awarded Ethiopian citizenship. Wow. (laughs) Yes. And has a really close relationship with the Ethiopian government. So on Catherine's watch, what used to be 1,400 deaths in every 100,000 live births has been reduced to 350. Wow. Yeah, so she's, I know, she's made a huge impact. Um, And she also advocates for laws against early marriage. Um, encourages women not to give birth at home, as well as increasing the number of midwives and support to improve the lives of survivors um, who've become isolated uh, from their families. I assume she also does a lot of training at her hospital there of of local probably majority women to kind of help make the the dealing with these horrible situations, you know, a little bit more manageable and and training the next generation of people to hopefully eradicate this horrible thing that's happening. One story in particular that I read was one of the surgeons at the hospital is actually one of her first patients um, who was a fistula survivor, had no education before she came to the hospital, is now a leading surgeon in in fistula surgery um, worldwide. So, yeah, I know, like Mm, just amazing, amazing opportunities and amazing support for the survivors of that, like such an awful, awful thing. So for our listeners wanting to learn a bit more about Dr. Catherine Hanlon, is she there? Is there some kind of amazing film about this awesome life of hers? Yeah, she has a book, I think. Should um, get on that. Mm. Yeah. I think there's a book. There is also the Hamlin Foundation um, that manages uh, fundraising and all that sort of stuff if you um, want to want to look them up. But, yeah, such an incredible, exceptional woman um, and so good that we can celebrate improvements in women's maternal health on this International Women's Day special. Also, my story is not quite as, as maybe grand as that. This is just the story of, of one woman who I happened to come across who, to me, just is an exceptional contributor to her community and to science. Her name is Honey McCoy. 
And that's a great it's name. It's a great name. And I came across the real McCoy. I came across her kind of in a confusing fashion. I was I was running a, a bulletin at the time for a, a society, right? And one of the components of the bulletin was that we would email out emails to our members and say, answer these questions and we can get to know you. You know, it was called the yeah. Meet a Member page and it was really, really great way to get because it's a national organisation, it was good to get people to find out about each other. So I would draw these names at random and I would pick who I was going to email, right? So one day I pulled out the names at random and I had this name, but there was no email address. It was just a postal address. Oh. And I thought, oh, well, I don't want to be... I don't want to, you know, discriminate. You, no, you, you don't want to be biased I don't towards want to, email addresses. Exactly. So I wrote this person an email. They were on Norfolk Island. You wrote, I wrote them, them a letter? I wrote them an email and then I printed it out. Oh, no, yeah. no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote them a letter and I, I sent it off to Norfolk Island and then a couple of months later I got a response from Miss Honey McCoy. Fantastic. So Honey McCoy is in her 80s. She lives on Norfolk Island and she has spent decades, most of her life – on the rejuvenation of the environment in Norfolk Island and the surrounding islands, right? So wow. she has been just painstakingly, tirelessly helping out there with the rejuvenation of the native flora because a lot of the islands, Norfolk, and then there's Phillip Island to seven kilometres to the south of Norfolk Island, which is Honey's kind of her, her area that she loved. Mm. Um, she restored a lot of that. They eradicated the rabbits and she's been managing to almost single-handedly restore the native flora there, which is pretty incredible. Incredible. Yeah, she spends a lot of time monitoring the seabirds and, and banding seabirds so they can be monitored, to, uh, migratory seabirds, to, to check how their, how their uh, lives are changing in this sort of changing climate, which is really fascinating. And her work, she in the early 80s, she came across this plant that she hadn't um, really seen before. And so she looked at it and then sent it to some other people. And it was a new species that they found that was endemic to Phillip Island and they actually named it after her, which is pretty cool. Incredible. Yeah, it's really lovely. And so this Honey is, or McCoy? No, her um, actual first name is Marguerite, I think, and so they called it uh, Marguerite, a scientific name of which I can't remember. But it's named after her, and to me that's just, you know, someone who's doing what she loves and she's passionate about it. And when she wrote back to me with the answers to her questions, I said, what's the best bit about what you do? What do you love the most? And she said, I just, I've always wanted to do this since I was 10. I get to be outside and care about the environment that I love so much and, and living on these islands is just remarkable. So, I'm, you know, honey, probably won't hear this. She hasn't got her name in lots of papers and you won't find much trace of her on the internet, but she, she just does great work. And that's, to me, on International Women's Day, it's women like that that need to need to be championed, I think. Lady, you're a star. You 
And that brings us to the end of this special International Women's Day edition of Lost in Science. Thank you very much to our guests, Dr. Karen Lamb and Dr. Linda McIver, for joining us in the studio today and also being such superstars. And, of course, a personal thank you for Dr. Linda Ashcroft for joining me on Lost in Science today. It is such a joy to be here with you today, Claire. It's really wonderful to be celebrating science on International Women's Day. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, if you want to give us feedback about the show or tell us something else that we would we should be doing a story on, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at lostinscience1, I believe we are, or find us on Facebook at lostinscience on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.